cliffcentral.com. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Mate Sessions with cliffcentral.com. Hello to my beautiful co-host, Tuliza Sundi. Hi. What's up? <laughs> okay, so about a month ago, we had the privilege of witnessing something truly special. By posing a few key questions, we saw a group of young men in grade nine at St. John's College completely expand their perceptions of power, value, and dignity in South African homes. The first question we asked them was, do you have a domestic worker in your home? 95% of the boys replied yes to this question. The second question was, how much power does your domestic worker have in your home? So here there was a little hesitation, um, but eventually the unanimous answer was very little. What we'd kind of picked up at this point was that, like many others, the boys had a certain detachment from their answers, as they all seemed to struggle to connect with the role of domestic worker or why these questions were even relevant to them. Until we asked them, what does your domestic worker know about you that nobody else does? So this question was cool because it caught them completely off guard. There was a wave of silence in the room, followed by many awkward gasps and uncomfortable giggles. Suddenly, the topic had gotten very personal, very quickly. We asked the boys to write down their answers and anonymously throw them in a hat. And Tools, what were some of the answers that they gave? Okay, I'll try and sound like the boys. (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) So some of the answers we got were, my domestic worker knows when I pretend to be sick to get out of school. Or she knows that I have a girlfriend. Mm. She knows that I hide money under my bed. She knows that I take really long showers. She knows that I'm afraid of the dark and that I wake up in the middle of the night to fall asleep in front of the television with the lights on. She knows that I sleep with my windows open. My domestic worker knows that every two months I sneak her 200 rand to support her and her family. Love that one. She knows that I'm trying to learn her mother tongue so we can communicate better and that I secretly enjoy eating chicken feet. Hmm. So do I. (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) She knows when I feel hurt and that she is my source of comfort, which is very beautiful. Yeah, stunning. Okay, so what happened was the boys were suddenly all shocked to realize how intimately connected they were to their domestic workers. But when asked again whether their domestic workers had any power, reluctantly, their unanimous response was still no, to very little. But why, we asked. And after a conversation, we realized that we all had very fixed assumptions on what value, dignity, and power look like. Assumptions that needed to be broken down in order to uncover the truth about domestic workers in South Africa. So that's exactly what we did. We spent hours with the boys in a facilitated discussion, looking at power, dignity and value in this role from every angle. Two days later, we asked them again, what is the power of domestic workers? The evolution in their answers was absolutely mind-blowing tools. So their answers went from she knows how long I shower and that I wake up in the night to watch television with the lights on to domestic workers are the best people to help South African homes to save water and electricity and to avoid a crisis that will destroy the economy. The answers went from how she knows she they sleep with the windows open to how domestic workers know our bad safety habits so well that they can help us to prevent crime in our homes. Hmm. 
It went from how she knows that they're learning her mother tongue and that they secretly enjoy eating chicken feet to how domestic workers can help South African children to learn more of our languages and culture. And it went from how she's their source of comfort to how she's the reason that their parents can go to work and earn the money that they need, knowing that they're in loving and safe hands. So again, mind-blowing for them to realize that many of the things that governments, companies, and you and I spend millions of time and resources trying to achieve, domestic workers can help us with right now. Suddenly, domestic workers were easily the most powerful people in our country. The blockage the boys had in the beginning had been superficial. A traditional understanding of what power and value looks like had misled them into thinking that these women of immense value in their lives were capable of very little. With us today, we have Lizzie Nesbitt, and she is the amazing educator who made it all possible. And we thought we'd bring her in today to reflect on this very powerful exercise. Hi, Lizzie. So good to have you here. Good to be here. (laughs) And thank you again for having made this possible. Um, So do you want to tell the listeners a bit about yourself? Um, well, you can probably tell I'm not from South Africa. I'm British. No, um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've I've lived in South Africa since 2008, where I came with my husband, and we were just discussing. Um, we had two children here, so we've got a hybrid family now of some South African children and with British parents. Love it. And um, so my children are seven and five, and in 2011. I started work at St. John's as a Latin teacher. I hadn't really expected to teach in South Africa because <laughs> I didn't expect there to be one of those jobs in South Africa. But amazingly, I didn't opened know up. it was actually. That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so amazing that I opened up. So I've been at St. John's since 2011. And yeah, this, what this discussion that we had with the boys came up as part of something that's been sort of Mm. dubbed Africa Month, mm. which isn't a very helpful title because it's really... <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, but really what it is, it's a program for grade nine boys um, that's integrated. So we collapse the curriculum and instead of doing formal lessons in individual subjects, instead we look at a big theme integrated mm. across. Mm. And we did it for the first time last year in 2016, and we called it Africa at Your Feet. And really what we were trying to do is give the boys a sense of the Africa that's out there that they could engage with. Mm. Um, because actually so many children in our country live here, and yet they don't really understand the beauty and potential and wonder of their continent. Absolutely. And there's a sense, a very narrow sort of, they see its problems, but not its opportunities. Absolutely. And what we really wanted to do in Africa at Your Feet was to say, this is a continent of opportunity go out and take it see what it is and go and take it so that's certainly true for me and my high school experience i started working at african leadership academy probably at around 23 and so this is a high school where they take kids across africa and teach them leadership and that was the first time i actually feel like i became african um or acquainted with what that more or less means and you know it's still it's it's still such a broad statement to make and it's a, it's still such a, a broad thing to kind of identify as. But certainly I became aware that, you know, there's more to this than <laughs> simply being South Africans. And I think uh, South Africa in, in particular is, is quite insular. I must say, yeah, I'm so conflicted about that as, <laughs> as you were saying that. Um, firstly, because we're using the term Africa um, mm. and... And that's just such an overwhelming word, you know, because we yeah. just, we, we, we don't know the nuances of this. In, probably, I would think one of the richest places on earth. 
as a continent. Um, but also, I guess where my, some of my conflict lies is that a lot of the St. John's boys are privileged. Mm. And so in a way, they could be raised to feel like they can go out and take whatever they want anyway. Mm. Um, and so I find it interesting how I think they would do that anyway, but mm. maybe on, on the wrong terms. So I wonder mm. then if this is actually something that at least allows them to understand the nuances so that when they do go out and, you yeah. know, feel like they can conquer the world, it's on better terms than mm. feeling entitled. I think what I realized, because honestly, there is no such, I mean, geographically, there's such a thing as being African and maybe really broadly from a cultural point of view, but you're right. Africa is simply too rich, too diverse, mm. too expansive um, to ever be a singular identity. But I guess what I learned, which I think is important for everyone to learn at some point, is I learned the things that I didn't know about the continent and how much. And I still do, I mean, I still know very little, mm. um, but I at least had a, a better understanding um, of that. Well, so what was interesting, actually, this year is that we we changed. We, each year, although the theme is Africa, we sort of do it differently. And what we shifted this year was we called it Africa, what's your story? Mm. And there was intentional double meaning in it right. in terms of we're asking Africa what its story is. And we had a day where we said, Joburg, what's your story? South Africa, what's your story? Africa, and we sort of moved out. But it was also pointed towards the boys of what's your current story about Africa? Mm. And part of it was about saying to the boys, listen to the story the stories of people here and places here, but also think about what is your story currently. Mm. And what was really great is that we, particularly in the first week, we took the boys down into downtown Joburg. Mm. And meanwhile, they were working with a performance poet articulating, I'm an African, but, Mm. and they were also articulating, I'm born in Africa. We had, I'm an African because, and we had born in Africa, but, and we got the boys to name and, and express where they currently sat within their city and their country and their continent. Mm. And that was a really powerful thing because I think it took away that sense, like you say, that sense of entitlement, but a sense Mm. of actually acknowledgement of where I sit currently, what are my assumptions, what are my insecurities? Mm. And and acknowledging that from that space then saying, well, how do I engage? How Mm. What is this place and who am I? Mm. And what does it look like for me as the person I am to engage better with it? And that became sort of the the overarching idea of the month this year and yeah. it was much more experiential which I think was important um, and I think like you say Tilly, so it shifted it from that I think Africa at your feet had that tone of entitlement mm-hmm. whereas in South Africa what your, what's your story was a sense of humility of being willing to listen yeah. and to say I need to hear your story I need to understand mine and get on a journey with the two yeah, yeah and I absolutely, absolutely love this idea of I think mean, <laughs> having a role on the continent, rather than being the continent, mm. right? being Africa, having a role on the continent, yeah. which I think uh, we all do. And so that's definitely what I found to be incredible about your program. So 14-year-old boys are a tough crowd, right? And oh, they are. The <laughs> I don't know how you did, Ever. Lizzie. <laughs> I don't know how many times like we, <laughs> we shrank. <laughs> they took us out several times, but in the best ways. Um, but also, I mean, an amazing way, isn't it? Because actually there's a sense that they, at one level they, they are, as all teenagers said, there's paradox of incredible energy mm. and development, but this incredible depth. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that depth. came out. And you just sat there, the, the two things exist together wonderfully. Mm. And I great. think often we... We missed, and I think what was amazing with what came out with the boys was just this depth that you thought, really, do you think like that? Depth Um, and vulnerability. Yes. Which I absolutely love. So what I want to ask you first and foremost, 
is, what made you think it was important for the grade nine class at St. John's College to engage with the role and power of domestic workers? And like you were saying, Talitha, particularly given that many of them come from extreme privilege and may think as a result that they don't really need to worry about these things. Mm. I think there's various things. I think for me, it goes back to that thing of who am I? Where am I now? How do I get on a journey forward? And I was really wrestling when I was planning the month of I really wanted the boys to engage somehow. I didn't want them to just learn and talk and it'd be a talk shop. I wanted them to engage. And we explored various things of ways of sort of social projects they could be engaged with. And and then this amazingly sort of came out of nowhere really to engage with you guys. But what for me I felt was so important is actually recognising we we want to bring change and we want to see things change in this country, but the change starts where I am now. I can't change who I am now. I can move forward from where I am now. Mm. And for me, the domestic worker thing worked so well because, like you said, 95% of the boys had a domestic, have a domestic worker. Mm. And so what we were looking at was how do I transform that relationship? How do I actually, in whether I'm in a company, whether I'm the director of a company, whether I'm a boy at school, mm. the fundamental question facing me is how do I transform the relationships I'm currently in where I have power to do so? Mm. And so with the domestic worker question, it's saying to the boys, you all have a domestic worker. You have a relationship with that person. What does it look like to acknowledge um, what it is now? What are some of the places where you could transform it to have greater power, to give that person greater power or to afford them, acknowledge their power, mm. give them greater dignity mm. and acknowledge their value? Mm. And so for me, it felt like a, in a wonderful way, it came together as a way of actually a place where we could examine where our relationships currently are at mm. and what transforming them would look like. Mm. So it became a... And actually what happened at the beginning of the week, we'd actually done a workshop. We were doing language and getting the boys to engage with African languages. Mm. And we worked with some of the staff from the school who do sort of the service jobs around the school. And they did a workshop with the boys, teaching them how to greet them in their mother tongue. Mm. And for me, that was an also a similar thing of saying, these are people in your midst. Mm. These are people you interact with. Every- stuff, right? Yeah. Okay. These are people you see every day. What does it look like to give them dignity and value? And mm. part of it is recognizing they're a person with a name. Mm. They're a person with a culture. They're a person with a language. And so I don't think we've, we've, we've pushed to the full extent of what we could do with that. But for me, it was saying, you're 14. Um, and as a 14 year old, I want you to think about what you can transform mm. now. And as, as you grow mm. at each stage, say, what can I transform? But for me, the domestic worker relationship was mm. a really important one to consider mm. in terms of what transformation could look like. Very early on, we had somebody come and talk about Af- um, South Africa's story. Um, and one of the things he said, South Africans are very good at talking, but we're not very good at doing. Yeah. And yeah. so for me, it was a really, I was really glad we had the opportunity mm. because it stopped us just talking about it, but actually saying, okay, what does it look like? Absolutely. And we teach our young people, for me, we teach our young people, um, you know, become an activist or a social change agent, whatever that means, become a president, become a business person, uh, become mm. an innovator, an entrepreneur, start Facebook. You know what I mean? Mm. These are the things that have an impact and they're mm. huge um, mm. and they're very hard at 14 to, to palette, but that's, and to wrap your mind around, but that's kind of how you're taught to aspire. Um, and I know personally that I always aspired to make these really huge revolutionary changes. I think but you I were think, literally the only child that was being told that girl. I wanted to be <laughs> we were being told to be lawyers and doctors and okay. you will not uh, be Mark so. Zuckerberg. <laughs> 
fake. <laughs> um, okay, maybe I, I, I told you. myself it was just me. Okay, yeah, why, it was, it was why, why you gotta do this? I got to expose me. But anyway, um, the point is, I think what I've realized through this process and through really grappling with the role of domestic workers and speaking to several of them, um, and speaking to people who have been domestic workers and now have great success stories is how change and power begins in, in household South Africa. Mm-hmm. Anything, you know, any kind of impact, any kind of social, political, economic impact begins in your home. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a powerful understanding of, of, of change and power. Especially because our households are actually a reflection of our societies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't find as South Africans that we're good at talking. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> like we, we might talk a lot, but I don't know no, if we're, we're not good, good at, at it. it. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I think we're saying it. a lot of things all the time, but I don't know if we're good at it. And I wonder if sometimes our conversations doesn't lead us to healthy enough actions to execute, mm-hmm. you know. So how do we how do we make our conversations healthier in order to get to actionable things? Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I mentioned earlier with the the poetry that the boys did. I what I felt was so helpful about that is that we took off our pretenses and the boys said who they were, mm-hmm. and we didn't. And I think so often when we talk, we're scared of our voice. We're scared that my voice maybe will offend you. Mm. I'll offend you that I'm so backward. I'll mm. offend you that I'm not, I'm not progressive enough. Mm. And so what was interesting is some of the boys came out with things that were a little bit, you know, they said, I'm born in Africa, but I aspire to Europe. And you're thinking, oh, no, 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 you're not meant to do that. You're not meant to do that. And then yeah. I thought, no, why am I worried are. about that? If you do, mm. say it, mm. name it. Mm. And so often I think our talking is powerless because we don't really say who we are. Mm. We don't really... And so I think what Mbali, who is the, the other Mbali who came and worked with us, she was so great at that, at just saying to the boys. She's a poet, right? Yeah, mm. Mbali Vilikazi, who's a, she lives in Cape Town, but she was wonderful with the boys. Mm. And she was really great with them at saying to them, say who you are, don't pretend. Yeah. And it created this platform and they, where they felt safe. Mm. And so when they came back from Ponty, they'd been downtown, they were, some of them were, really shocked and found it very hard going down to Holbrow and realizing this is a world I never knew. Mm. But she created this wonderfully safe space to say this is this was what I experienced. Safe spaces. I know I yeah. know Lisa's dying to talk about safe spaces. <laughs> so <laughs> no, tell us. I'm just wondering But I think I think that's why our talking's bad because it's not safe. Yeah, so yeah, because yeah, I don't yeah. say this is who I am. I'm scared you'll judge me. Mm. Our talking nev- doesn't move it moves us into a theoretical place but not a practical space. Mm. But then what I wonder is does that safe space continue after the workshop? Because they're still confronted with their friends and their peers who they thought would judge them Mm. and even though they were offered that safe space temporarily Mm. once Mbali goes and there isn't a safe space anymore do they still provide that for each other well it's interesting after we we did a presentation that Tulisa and Bali came to you guys came to um, at the end and I had a parent come up to me afterwards to say it was really extraordinary my boy had his um, it was his birthday party and he had a sleepover and it was just so interesting hearing them talk mm. and how their conversation had changed. So possibly not at school where the thing, the fundamental structure doesn't change afterwards, mm. but there's a sense where in their relationships at home, mm. there is, they, they have the tools they've with one another. They've talked in that way before and they can bring that up again. But uh, I also find in my experience, 
And what I observed with the boys, because they were these powerful moments of vulnerability and they were really hard to crack, but when they mm-hmm. were, happened, they were beautiful. Mm-hmm. And there is something in the high school persona that is very different from the actual person. And I think we all had it, you know, um, and we'd be in groups and we'd have certain kinds of conversations and it was all about being cool and, and fitting in and mm-hmm. saying the thing that everybody would love you for. And then, you know, you'd have those friends or teachers or um, parents you could talk to one on one, and I think the 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 depth of the conversation, even the person you expressed in those kind of smaller forums, were were different. Um, and so, yeah, I think those certainly have power. I don't know what your experience was. I didn't have that experience at all. <laughs> <laughs> we we always laugh at each other because we just had, we had completely different experiences. <laughs> But I feel like high school just went way over my head. Like I didn't notice that, you know, there were like clicks and <laughs> you had to do certain things to look cool. I just thought they were weird and I didn't get along with them. I didn't understand them. You, you were know, immune the cool to high school. Yeah. Show. Yeah. What a show. <laughs> but I mean, I think that's why I'm a little bit not so well adjusted as an adult because there's, you know, social or rules. Too well adjusted. <laughs> but I did find that interesting though with the boys. Like I wondered if there was the, the cool factor a barrier, you know, that even though some had very endearing, um, an endearing relationship with their domestic worker, that maybe it would be uncool to say it in that room, you mm-hmm. know, amongst their friends. And that even if we tried to provide a safe space for them, would their coolness factor still be under threat, you know, so after we're gone. Um, and I think that's, that's somewhat like, I think the thing that I'm always grappling with with safe spaces is when you're in a room full of people that hold your social structure up, mm. you know, and you are a certain thing socially in that group. Can that space be so safe that they really, that all those rules go away, you know? And that it maybe even changes the social dynamic afterwards. I wonder whether some of it, it there's, there's a growth curve, isn't there? But I think that that's, that's a really powerful role of the adult in that moment is to say the adult, I think so often, you know, you're a teenager, you're trying to work out what does it mean to be a grown up. And it seems, you know, to, to be about obeying certain codes and conforming to expectations. And the role of the adult in that space is to say, that isn't the adult thing to do. The adult thing to do is to listen, mm. to hear, mm. to acknowledge, to recognize the other. Mm. And so while that child might leave that room at 14 and think and revert to type, revert to mm. how things have been, there's a powerful moment that's happened there that you have modeled to them that adult behavior is about listening. Mm. Yes. And yeah. so there's a sense that there's an adulthood for them to grow into. Mm. They may not in that moment grow into adulthood, and that's totally fine, but there's a sense that you are modeling to them mm. that what adult conversation I, looks like. And for me, that's, I mean, I'm really privileged that I have small classes, and for me, that's a really, something I really value is that I can model adulthood to them and yet provide the space for them to express their adolescence mm. and their growth into adulthood as well. Do you know what was wow. funny? I found, I found their humanity to be so prevailing, even under those circumstances, because mm. there was a difference between the things that got laughs, right, mm. which people said to be cool, yeah. and the things that would get a round of applause. I will never forget the answer one of the boys gave who said... Um, he gives his domestic worker 200 rand. He sneaks his domestic worker 200 rand at, mm. the, at the end of every month or every two months. And there was just this very sincere respect and round of applause that came with that, uh, that answer. And so 
I think if you're able to persist um, with the things that matter, that mm. they really do, they, they get through yeah. all of the, the bluster and the, you know, all of the superficial stuff. But then do you think with that, that they could equally so try and do that in their homes? So with the existing power dynamics in their homes between their parents and their domestic worker, between themselves and their domestic worker, do you think that, you know, with things like that, that in time they could start to, you know, prompt certain conversations that start to engage power dynamics and, you know, the level of dignity that everyone in a house has and those kinds of things? I mean, as you said, I think part of, I mean, part of it is just saying to people the conversations allowed. And I think, I think so much of what you did that was really important was to, to give the boy, again, giving the boys voice, helping them to connect with what they really think and saying, this is a legitimate, this is a legitimate conversation to have. I mean, I think, and, and it's a good one to have. And I, it was interesting. I was telling an older year group yesterday that I was coming here. And I just can't believe they just, it just flowed out. As soon as it was opened as a topic we could talk about, mm. they, and I think for the boys to appreciate this is something we are all thinking about, but we're not necessarily acknowledging it. You validated it in that space mm. and you, you're not in control of whether they can talk about it in another space, but you validated mm. that it could be talked about, yeah. that they can talk about it, that they've got important things to say into it. Mm. So again, it's that sense that we're not, in the same way, I'm not responsible when they leave that room of how they behave, but I've modelled them they could behave this way. Yeah. There's a sense of I'm not in control of what happens in the families, but I've given a model that this is a conversation that you're capable of having. And I think that's important. Um, and, I, and I believe it did happen. I, did, I really, yeah. I, I wouldn't say it happened with every family, but I think I, the feedback I got that it was going on and that there were a lot of what went on and the other wonderful thing about the integrated studies, they didn't have homework. So was that time to sit and talk and reflect and, mm. and go home? And so we talked about this today and mm. well, I told it, you, it validated I that. I told you about the boy who came up to me in the middle of Rosebank and I didn't recognize him even. I felt so bad, but he was so proud to introduce me to his dad, yep. you know, and that was such a, that mm. was such an incredible testament for me. Mm. Um, so so yeah. I think a lot of what you were doing, you was, you were modeling. This is a conversation that as adults, we're capable of having, we want to have, and we want to enable you to have. And I think that was a really important thing that went on. Yeah. So, so just very quickly, this might be a bit of an unfair question, but why do you think we don't have these conversations? What do you think closed up the potential to have these conversations? I'm going to talk off the top of my head, so I'll, I might be wrong with my answer. I, I think it's... it's <laughs> But I mean, I think there's some extent that there is a, I mean, we talked about this with the domestic work, didn't we? The sort of the shame that a domestic worker can feel with her uniform. And I think that there is a, is there an extent that as the South Africans, we've, we've not quite, we've not quite worked out as the employer. Is it, we've, we justify that it's good to have domestic work. It's like if someone a wage, but we haven't quite fully worked out is this all a good thing? And have we have we had that conversation about that? Do we think that the domestic worker is? I mean, we've had this conversation a little bit of like, mm. is this is this something that we're trying to transform that actually is fundamentally not a good thing? Yeah. And or is it that only certain components are bad, but not all of it bad? Exactly. Right. And so I think there is that latent fear of if I talk about this, will I invalidate the whole system? Mm. And and it's trying to say actually we can have this conversation. We can we can work out. And it was interesting, your conversation with the boys start on the back of Nigel Branken was in with us as well and talking about the living wage. And I think what he, what he set it up 
for me with that conversation was saying, if the employer um, remunerates fairly and and enables this person to live well and their fundamental needs met, this is a good thing. Mm. And it that then said, okay, right, that's the basis on which we can then have this conversation of what does power, dignity, value look like. Uh. So there's a baseline. Uh-huh. But I sometimes wonder whether because people worry that the baseline's shaky, they fear the conversation on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas actually, I think as South Africans, it is a very different system to what's in Europe. And there may be a different opinion in that, but I think what Nigel did in that space was to say, under these conditions, with the employer recognising their responsibility, it's not the... It's not okay to say this person needs a job so I can pay them whatever. It's the employer's responsibility to say it's my responsibility as the employer to pay justly and fairly so this person can live adequately. Um, Then the system's okay. Let's talk about what those transformation look like. Whilst you're on a roll, what for you were some of the most powerful takeouts from um, this exercise, both for the school Mm -hmm. and for the boys themselves? I mean, I think the powerful thing for them, I think, was to... We, we talked as well about the uniform, didn't we? And that, for me, was a really powerful session where the boys understood the value of their uniform to them. For them, it's a thing that they put on with pride. They feel really proud to be part of St. John's. Mm. And there's a sense they put on dignity and they put on value when they put that. And it raises that there's a type of behaviour that's expected of them mm. that they live up to in that uniform. Mm. And what was very powerful was in that penny drop when they realised, well, what happens when you make somebody wear something that doesn't suit them and doesn't, that is actually covers up their personality. And in one sense, rather than them having something that they rise up to, Mm. that actually Mm. they, and there was a moment with one of the boys where he talked about how he'd gone to the shops with his domestic worker in and tried on her uniform to see what it felt like. And And I think that moment of (laughs) empathy where the boys, suddenly the penny dropped of actually how our outer attitudes, our inner attitudes can be expressed in the outer things. And Mm. and what does that look like? And we don't, it's not about changing the outer straight away in order to um, pretend everything's okay, but recognising that the, the symbols that we give to people that sometimes unwittingly we just don't think about what that's communicating to people and i think i for me i think what was really powerful was that we had that deeper conversation so that when we had that conversation about the superficial inverted commas about the uniform Mm. the boys could see really powerfully how the inner and outer need to be integrated Mm -hmm. and you, you transform the inner first but the outer is an important thing that either um articulates transformation or it embeds lack of and that was so what i wondered the whole time um and it was so heavy i think on on us both was you know we were very aware that there were probably kids in the group whose parents were domestic workers Mm. um and you know that's not necessarily something we engaged with. We wanted to to create an experience that was as kind of inclusive and universal as mm. possible and not to hone in or to single those kids out necessarily or to, to censor um, or to tweak our presentation um, because, you know, that can end up doing more harm than good. Mm. But I can't, I mean, I don't even know what the question is here necessarily, but how... Uh, how do you imagine they they received um, 
the exercise and and, mm. and what what effect do you think it, it may have had on on them personally and mm. also on their um on them socially mm. i mean i pull that back a step in terms of thinking about the the effect on all the boys i think mm. a lot of it was there was a transformation i think in their thinking in terms of beginning to understand the empowerment that they and their families are given through domestic workers mm. and i think that was really good for all of us to to sense that mm. um so i think that was a shift in all of the boys mm. and i think if for the boys there whose parents are domestic workers i think that shift would have happened at a more profound level too of a sense of actually my mother does something that's mm. really powerful and mm. significant that is enabling so. another family to thrive i hope that would be my i as you spoke, I thought if, if I was in that situation, I would feel a welling pride mm. that my mother is actually an enabler of others, mm. that she's empowering others, mm. and that in itself is an expression of her power. Mm. So I think, I hope that that was the outcome. Okay. because um, So both for, for all the boys, but especially for those who um, their mothers are domestic workers. Yeah, I, I wonder if they might have been... Like, I imagine that they must have been balancing so many emotions, you know, that the, on the one hand, there's pride. On the other hand, there could be a level of anger because why does my powerful mother not get paid well, you mm-hmm. know? And why do I still have to suffer if she is as powerful as they tell me she is, mm-hmm. you know? On the other hand, still some latent shame, you know? So, like, I can mm-hmm. only imagine yeah. what layers. yeah, what yeah. those students yeah. must have experienced. Yeah, no, it and I suppose, I mean, and I suppose that is that... So we had, like I said, we started with Nigel sort of talking about the living wage, but then when you get to the end of it, you're thinking, well, if this person is enabling me to do all of these things, well, what, what does, what does remuneration look like here? What does it look like to, um, give this, give this person dignity, but also recognize what they give to our home in mm. a financial way as well? And I think that's a, it's a, it's a hard issue <laughs> for people to wrestle with. So on the other end of the spectrum, what are some of the challenges you have? in these types of conversations, with these types of programs, with the boys of extreme privilege, what are some of the blockages? Do you find them open to these sorts of conversations? Is there resistance? Is there a, an attitude? Is there... A... I think it, it varies. I, I, I mean, one of the really the things that really came home to me um, through this was for particularly for for white boys, there were a number who were really wrestling with, well, what do I do with my privilege? It's almost like this, it's not a burden, but I, I almost feel like I'm stuck with it. What do I do with it to make it good? Uh. And I think that's it. And that we had um, this wonderful rap group who performed at the end. And one of the, the, one of the questions that one of the boys in his segment asked was, help me to know what it looks like to relate to you rightly. Mm. And, I, for me, that was very, yeah, and it was, it was moving because Mm. I felt like you're expressing that at one level, um, privilege is a wonderful thing, but there's also, there's a burden that comes with it of what does it really like to use that responsibly? And I, I think if, if the boys sense that, and I, I heard that in that segment, that was a really profound thing Mm. that there aren't easy answers of what to do with privilege. And I think Nigel addressed some of that of what do I, do I feel bad about it? What do I do with it? Do I offload my privilege or do I use it? And they're not easy questions, but I think just to even give a boy a sense of a burden that I've got to wrestle with this, I've got to work out what to do with it, that's really important. Mm. And and to start that honest conversation. 
And how much do they understand about the layers of privilege? So, you know, financial is one of the the tiers mm. of privilege. And, you know, a lot of white people might not necessarily have that kind of privilege, but they have a lot of other privileges, like being a man has certain privileges, mm. being white has certain privileges. Do they understand those different degrees of privileges? I think to some extent, but I... Essentially, I've got a good friend. She's in social development here, and she said to me, "Did you did you talk about institutional change and this?" And I, and I said to, "I, I this year made almost made a choice not to talk about those things because I felt I wanted them to engage with something that conceptually they could understand um, in terms of the financial privilege and the privileges of their particular education, and I wanted them to get that strong sense of those two things primarily because I think there is a sense in which, like I said." working out what is age appropriate to them. And I think they need to have some, and Nigel addressed it to some extent, they need to know there are institutional privileges and there are structural privileges and all of those things. Mm. But I didn't want to disempower them completely and feel, well, I can't do anything about that. To some extent, I wanted them to think, well, there are aspects of your privilege that at the age of 14, you have got power to wrestle with. Mm. So I want you to wrestle with them. When you're 18, 19, 20, I want you to then begin to think as you enter into a world where you experience that more fully, mm. I want you to wrestle then. But this year I made a conscious choice to say, well, let's work out for this child. I don't want to overly burden him with things he's got no control of at this moment. He may have been born into them and he may enjoy them, but his power to change them is limited now. But I want him to think about the things that he can change as he is now. So I think there was a there was some consciousness raised of those things, but we didn't address those head on because I felt right. I didn't want to disempower right. through the process. Fair, fair. Yeah. So I'm curious um, about you personally and mm-hmm. your, you said both your kids have been born in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about your experience with domestic work in South Africa. I'm curious mm-hmm. if there were any personal takeouts for you from the conversation. Yeah. I mean, we were interesting. We had, for four years, we had a domestic worker for one day a week. And then once we had a second child, we went up to two days a week. Um, but I think we had this conversation, didn't we? For me, the thing that I appreciate so much more now, as we've had this conversation, is about... I've always said it would be much harder for me to work if I was in England because I would have to juggle so much more. Mm. But I think for me, the fact that my home always has a person in it I suddenly appreciated what a powerful thing that is, the stability that that gives us as a family, um, the, in one sense, the ability for us all to weave in and out, but have a constant person in that space, whether that's me, my husband, or the domestic worker. And so for my children, they grow up in a very safe domestic space. I've never had to outsource my children to another space that's unfamiliar, that I've always been able to their safe space that they their go-to safe space is home mm. and so which is interesting that title of domestic worker it's that they're in the home mm. and i think just for me realizing the the enrichment to my home mm. and the enrichment of my children's home through having a constant presence there realizing how important that's been to me and i don't think i'd been able to articulate that so much until we chatted right. it through of that's enabled me to feel like I've been able to perform a function as a, a professional, awesome. but also my role as a mother, awesome. and that I haven't had to conflict those has been because there's a there's another person who's part of our home. Yeah, so for me, that the, the it's less power and more presence, right. or the pre, the power of presence that right. that person has. So I just wonder then, how on earth is 
is the role so devalued? You know, I mean, one of the children that had mentioned how was it something like spending 5,000 rand a week at the tuck shop? If that were true, I wonder, and even if it's anywhere maybe close to a thousand rand even, you know, say, say that's what he spends a week. So let's, mm. let's take it down. Um, and on average, a lot of domestic workers earn about 2,500 rand a month. Mm. Um, and this is even in very rich households, very mm. wealthy households. So I just wonder how, you know, because we, we give money to the things that we value or we invest in things that we value, you know, it's mm. directly associated to perception. So how can we perceive and, Maybe it's not surprising because you would freely want to give your child money because it is your child and you love them. Mm. But equally so, you know, the person in your home is playing an extremely pivotal role that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. Um, so how how is such an incredibly instrumental role so devalued? How do you think that happens? Convenient. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Is it, I mean, is part of it familiarity that we have? Un... So as I said to you, some of the boys said, you know, born in Africa, but I aspire to Europe. And I was thinking, do you really? Do you really know? <laughs> like, it's a really different lifestyle. Yeah. And I think um, there is a, we, we've, it, in terms of getting somebody to really feel what life would be like without that person is hard when it's been such an integral part of society people's expectation of how their mothers functioned, how they now function. Um, I think it's hard to get people to conceptualise what life would be without that person. I mean, for me, I can, I can, because I'm aware of friends in the UK who work and what their expenditure in terms of being able to go back to work is and realising it's a huge financial dent to go back to work as a mother. Whereas here, it's not in any way at all. But I think unless you've experienced the difference, um, maybe it's very hard for people to understand and appreciate the worth of that. And I think, mm. um, so I do think there's a familiarity um, and in one sense, and like you say, in one sense our society depends on this, but we haven't really fully delved into, well, what, okay, let's imagine a life without it yeah. and then rebuild with it and begin to value it rightly. But it's very hard to deconstruct and then build back up again in people's mindset of how valuable something is. Mm. Um, but certainly for me, that's it's the comparison that I can conceptually do of if I were to live here, this is what I have. If I weren't to live here, mm. this is how life would be. Mm. Because I can physically imagine both, I find maybe find it a little bit easier to, to value it. Mm. Whereas I think if you don't have the sort of, you, you have a sort of very abstract concept of European life, for instance, then it's not, it's harder to value it. Yeah. This is a conversation I really hope that we can bring to people across generations. And I think in an environment like a school that is a thinking environment, you know, mm -hmm. and that's the beauty of, of putting conversations in schools is they don't deteriorate as easily because mm -hmm. it's a thinking space. Um, and so I guess what I would like is some feedback for you. If you have any, some feedback on, um, what more we could have done, what else we can do, as well as whether you'd recommend this for, for schools and educational environments across South Africa. I think for me, obviously there's a curriculum at school to fulfil, but there's a conversation to be enabled. And I think hmm. what you guys were doing was part of that part of education, which is about enabling conversations which are safe, 
which, like you say, it's a thinking space where in one sense it's normal to have these things, mm. whereas um, there are so many parts of life that we just get on with doing stuff, whereas school is a space to think. Mm. Um, and so for me, a lot of, a huge part of education is about creating space for the conversation. So I think what you're doing is a fundamental part of education in terms of saying, let's talk about the things that are close to us, that are important to us, and let's wrestle with them deeply. Because mm. we wrestle most deeply with the things that are most important to us, and I think this is one of them. Mm. So I'd say as an educational experience, I think it's really important because you're getting people to think about core values, about assumptions, about um, the way those values are worked out in practice and structures and all of those things. So you're doing a hugely critical evaluation of something, but mm. something that truly matters, yeah. and that's great. Mm. So I think... I think it's a really important conversation for South Africans to have as they wrestle with their identity as and South just Africans. just to add to that, mind you, I think the fact that it does strike an emotional chord and that it is personal makes the constructs and the ideologies go further. Yeah, exactly. So you actually, what you're doing is a lot of ideological thinking, but you're talking about it in a very practical way. Mm. But you're, you're, you're constantly with this issue pushing up against ideological issues as well. Mm. And I think that's why it's such a powerful thing. Um, I think it's a great workshop. I mean, I think probably with the boys, had we structured it sort of, I think at one level it worked because it was across days because that was, it gave space for stuff to sink in. Mm. But I think partly, as you know, it was sort of, we were working a bit on the hoof and like we, this worked, so we brought you back and, <laughs> and it was brilliant because there was space to do that. But I think I can imagine trying to work out a time frame mm. that gives the space for the conversation, a bit of time to settle, then a new conversation. And so I think what we really did was the value, power and dignity. And then we thought about the uniform mm. and then we had a further conversation about that. But I think there's a, it's trying to work out the right timing progression for it. But mm. I think... I think it's two brilliant half days of conversation mm. that you either work out, do you do it as a whole or do you split it across days? But I think it's a really important conversation to have and that people are having internally, but they're not giving voice to. Ah. And that's what I think was so good that's about it. so astute. That's yeah. so astute. I can't tell you how astute that is because it feels like when we started the show and we started to give people a safe space to have this conversation about what happens in their homes, their relationship with their domestic workers. They don't stop. They don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it feels like they've been bursting with, with, with all these confessions and these questions and these dilemmas. And, um, really this has turned out to be an incredibly therapeutic space for them. Um, so what you're saying is absolutely, absolutely right. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Pleasure. Shucks. I mean, I don't, I, I'm so sad for St. John's and for, for South Africa, quite frankly, to lose you. Um, you've just been, you've been such an asset to this process and you've, you've really, uh, helped us to kind of cement and to make sense of the, the impact that this conversation can really, really have. So thank you so much for being here. No, thank you for inviting us. And thank you guys as always for listening. Um, thought of the day will be the main question we asked the boys. And it's, uh, what does your domestic worker know about you that nobody else does? And what does this mean for the power and the value and the dignity that you afford her in your home? And I think that's a wrap. Lisa? Please go to our Twitter page at Maid Project. That's M-A-I-D-E Project. As well as our Facebook page, which is The Maid Sessions. Again, that's M-A-I-D-E. Again, such a pleasure, Lizzie. Have a very good afternoon. See you next week. Cheers. Bye. Cliffcentral.com.